Matt here and welcome to Looking Back at Lost, where each week I look at another episode of ABC's Lost to see how that episode fits into the series as a whole. Today I'll be covering episode 402, entitled Confirmed Dead. This is the 74th hour of the series, and there are 48 to go. You know, it's a bit of a preface uh, to this episode. What a joy it was to watch. This is a fantastic episode. I know some of the critical buzz was split on it or, or a bit down on it, but it almost felt like it was a second uh, season introduction, season opener, and just an absolutely fantastic episode. Kind of like a mini The Other 48 Days. Uh, with, you know, in, in The Other 48 Days, we knew a bit about the people's backgrounds. You know, the tail section of the plane, we knew that much. Uh, we knew a little bit of the the characters leading up uh, uh, towards that. Uh, certainly, kind of you know their, the end of their their solo tail section story is kind of these desperate souls. But this was just such a fantastic episode to the point that it almost blurs the memory uh, of last week's episode. Which uh, for you listening to this, we discussed last week. For me, uh, I recorded that episode a mere twenty four hours ago then got done, watched 402, and I feel like this is almost a better episode. Yes, uh, yes, the beginning of the end does introduce kind of more uh, flash sideways, uh, flash forwards, so again, ahead of myself there. Uh, it does have more flash forwards. It does have the notion of the Oceanic Six. It gives us, uh, gives us a certain, uh, let's say a medium point for the, the season to be stretching towards. Uh, this this kind of interim uh, notion of, of who who gets off the island, something that we'll find out, of course, at the end of the season. But I feel like uh, with the proper introduction in this episode of uh, Daniel, of Charlotte, of Miles, and of the beloved Lapidus, uh, I feel like the second half of Lost starts now. It starts with this episode, and it was... Such a treat to watch. Uh, I would even say, you know, as 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 good and succinct as the uh, Wikipedia summary is for this episode that I will read momentarily, I would encourage you to uh, to pause the podcast, go back and rewatch this episode because it's such great fun. It's kind of, you know, it's it's almost the click 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 of that roller coaster. We're about to get ready for the next big adventure. Uh, Things uh, such as Charlotte finding that uh, you know Dharma Initiative bear collar and things where you just say you know whoa there's there's a big scale going on here and uh, particularly with the introductions of uh, Charlotte and Daniel uh, and to a lesser degree the other two it's the show really preparing for this large scope that will be seasons four five and six so with that. Let's get to the Wikipedia summary for the episode. 
The episode's five flashbacks focus on the reactions and activities of the Kahana crew after 8.15 is discovered. Daniel Faraday is shown crying while watching the news, although he is not sure why. Miles is a medium who is hired by an elderly woman to remove the ghost of her grandson from her home. After conversing with the spirit, Miles finds a hidden cache of money and drugs. Charlotte is an anthropologist who finds a polar bear skeleton bearing a Dharma Initiative collar buried in the Tunisian desert. Frank Lapidus, an alcoholic who was originally scheduled to fly 815, phones the Oceanic Hotline and claims that the wreckage of the plane is not authentic. Finally, Naomi Dort is shown in a posthumous flashback, criticizing her employer Matthew Abaddon for his choice of co-workers. As for the on-island story, after Daniel parachutes from a falling helicopter onto the island, he uses Naomi's phone to contact George Minkowski on the Kahana, the freighter from which he came. The next morning, on December 22nd, 2004, 815 survivors Jack and Kate helped Daniel find his colleagues, as the rival group, led by Locke, attempts to do the same. Jack and Kate find Miles, who demands to see Naomi's body and ascertains that Locke killed her. Locke's group finds Charlotte, takes her prisoner, and disposes of her tracking device. Daniel's third colleague, helicopter pilot Frank Lapidus, fires a flare into the sky, leading Jack's group to him. Frank tells Jack's group that he managed to land the helicopter intact. After finding out that Juliet is one of the others, aka natives, Miles demands to know where Ben is, as locating him is the freighter crew's primary objective. In Locke's group, several people become discontent with Locke's revelation that he is following the instructions, apparently, of Walt, who had left the island a month earlier. And they also question why Ben is being kept alive. Locke holds him at gunpoint, and Ben starts to, to reveal information about the Kahana crew, specifically Charlotte's identity, and that he has a spy on board. So with that, let's now get into my thoughts about this just wonderful, jam-packed, forward-looking, fun, fun, fun episode. It is indeed an arresting opening. Uh, we can immediately predict what it will be, despite no clues to the contrary. Are you getting this? What? What's up? It's... It's an airplane. It's such a memorable shot. Not maybe not perfect in its computer-generated status, but just fantastic. Then moves to uh, the you know television news digesting that, and the story moves to somebody who I am sure I and I probably should have gone back to double check this, but I'm sure that they then refer to Dan as Sam. Although perhaps it's Dan, and that's just my poor. Well, not my poor hearing. My hearing is fine, but who knows? Uh, anyhow, who we will call Daniel Faraday um, at this point, uh, for first-time viewers unknown to us, he's watching the footage and crying. It's another absolutely memorable scene, down to him admitting that he doesn't know why he's upset. Then, of course, there's also the matter of this mystery woman, uh, who he can't help but notice is shot from the shoulders down. It's yet another little question to keep track of. Of course, another little mystery that the show has planted. Uh, I think at the time, the assumption was wife, girlfriend, perhaps mother. Uh, we'll obviously find out that 
At least some of those answers, all those answers are wrong. Wisely at this point, the show then jumps, jump cuts, no whoosh, no fanfare, no even title card to the helicopter. Uh, and it, it takes a second viewing, I think, to see the fleeting shots of Miles, Charlotte, and of course, our old pilot, or maybe not old, our new, <laughs> new to us on this viewing, but our old old buddy on the rewatch, Lapidus. Uh, and it's shot with this real sense of hyper-realism. It's as shaky as shaky can be in a downward helicopter. Miles all but throws Daniel out, which I think is so, uh, even within kind of the drama of the moment and, and the necessity of getting Daniel out first, because that's who we saw at the end of uh, the previous episode, speaks so much about Miles' character, speaks so much about Daniel's character. And after Daniel is thrown out, there's just this wonderful point-of-view shot uh, as he opens his parachute and really, you know, hits the landing quite nicely. Uh, I don't know if this is in the uh, the uh, trivia at the end or not, but I did read somewhere that the show was a bit, uh, I don't want to say excessive, but that they were aware that they could get away with a bunch of effects shots in this episode because they had all this time. They had from when they started to, to shoot in in the summer until the following January in order to, you know, need to deliver the episodes. They could really kind of, you know, polish some of these scenes quite nicely. The show at this point gives a moment for things to breathe, Daniel having landed, and at this point we're ahead of him. He's fearful who for you know concerning about who's about to turn the corner, but we aren't. We saw last week's episode. Uh the story blends with the end of indeed last week's episode and continues through it nicely they greet each other and the teaser act ends with one great hollow zinger i'm here to rescue you quite a good way to keep the natives happy i suppose tell them what they want to hear after the title card daniel seems wonderfully wonderfully frumpy he's his slightly stilted style of talking the wet, wrinkled shirt, tie, and vest, which apparently was under his flight suit. Uh, and indeed, at this point, he uses Kate's sat phone, formerly Naomi's sat phone, to call back the freighter. And the conversation seems to be going along well, until Minkowski asks to be taken off speakerphone, and Kate and Jack notice that the innocuous Daniel also has a gun in his belt. Now, on first viewing, I wonder where our loyalties would have would have been uh was there a team lock and a team jack back then uh or were we so simply so overwhelmed by the possibilities that we theorized but didn't take sides uh certainly i mean in retrospect it's well in retrospect the answer is obvious on top of that in retrospect uh uh penny is such a uh, uh such kind of a you know a magnetic north for goodness and rightness and love and all that, that that you can kind of take her at her word and you know her saying you know her message of it not being her boat kind of you know i think uh certainly should have been a clue to first-time viewers then given what we knew about her thus far uh you add to that the you know she's she is penelope a la the uh yeah the odyssey and odysseus and and uh you know, his struggle to get home and to the degree that Desmond is a, a metaphor for Odysseus, uh, which for those of you who don't, don't like hearing the religious end of these, of this, uh, 
literary analysis, congrats. I'm not making a Desmond is Christ metaphor here. I'm making a Desmond is Odysseus metaphor. So anyhow, another interesting, albeit comical moment is that with the missing survivors of the chapter uh, of chapter of the chopper the show has once again reinvented itself the chopper survivors have been scattered who has lived who has died who are these people who've just survived the chopper crash or the bumpy chopper landing as we'll find out uh so i I just love that these four characters who are going to serve us so well for the, the rest of the series i mean i know charlotte uh exits and dan exits uh before the finale but uh you know, they are a mini eight fifteen. This this four, and just as not everyone uh, who who landed on the island and in pilot part one made it to the end, so it is with them. The scene wraps up with Dan asking wherever everyone else is. Kate replies that most are at the beach. Most of them, Dan asks. With that, there's a hard cut to Locke, who of course is not one of those at the beach. Uh, his face is upward in the, the rain. You get the sense that he's kind of praising his pagan island here, that that man of faith reveling in, in the island and in nature. Dialogue progresses with Sawyer wondering why they aren't headed directly to the barracks. Locke responds that they're going to a cabin, which we are meant to take as Jacob's cabin. There's a fantastic little moment where Hurley interjects that he thought it was over there. And the idea of him pointing towards the cabin that away catches the attention of both Locke and Ben. And I wonder what Ben was thinking that the least among them, Hurley, has somehow seen the cabin without any guidance, help, or calling. Again, I would add this in the uh, the category of of Hurley being on a path to be uh, to be that island protector from the very beginning. Then now we kind of see it a bit from perhaps from Jacob's end, I'm not going to quite make the argument that, that it was Jake and who, Jacob who called him to the cabin, or I suppose another interpretation is that it was, uh, you know, that it was smoky and a fake cabin. Uh, so I'm not quite, you know, I mean, per- perhaps Hurley was just receptive to the magic vibes, the supernatural vibes without, you know, either uh, goody or baddie saying, you know, kind of come to me, Hurley, I, I call you. But indeed, there Hurley is. He has seen the cabin without guidance, help, or calling. Locke, on the other hand, mentions that he's gotten his guidance, help, and calling from Walt. The story moves to Saeed kind of vaguely concerned about the lack of a freighter appearing at the moment. He asks Juliet uh, the question that we have all been asking. Why would Ben claim the freighter folk are baddies? And the answer just perfectly encapsulates Ben just spot on. Because he's a liar. And he's trying to scare us. That's what Ben does. Or because the people coming here intend to do us harm. How many guns do you have left? Just perfect. You know, Ben always lies except for when he tells the perfect truth. Luckily, the ominous cloud about these freighter folk uh, continues to grow in the next scene, where Jack and Kate find a discarded chopper box filled with gas masks. Daniel admits that the gun was brought as a precaution, 
and that uh, rescuing everyone is not the primary objective. There's a just a great little moment where he's asked about why he has the gun, and and during that, there's a quick shot of his hand kind of reaching back and fingering the handle of it. It's it's nice, and it conveys a sense of his character. It's you know, as with the best moments of any drama, uh, you want ideally any element that you see to be serving the story in some way here we have a new character and that shot of him uh touching the gun reminds us that he's prepared unsure out of his element and there's kind of a question in our minds as to how he will act in a tense situation luckily the hand of the writer also appears this time not just the hand of daniel but the hand of the writer We've brought up this is not our primary objective. So what is the primary objective? (gasps) Oh, look, let's talk about something else because we found Miles on the sat phone. So we get to table that discussion for, I don't know, the last act of the show, perhaps. Story then moves to Locke explaining, half expositionally, to Sawyer about how Walt called him into action. Locke also nicely recaps how Ben shot him, how there's a gooey wound there, and and that irony of ironies, he would probably be dead if he had a kidney. Thanks, Dad. Kind of my snarkiness aside, it's a really nice uh, moment because you sit and say, come on, how can somebody be shot and live, you know, especially in the torso, in the guts? No gut there, just, just meat, just muscle. Just through and through. All that has to do is heal by the Magic Island properties. No concern of, you know, an, an intestine leaking fecal matter or this or that or your heart has been hit. You know, no, it's just it's just tissue. As a side note, it must have been interesting for the actor playing Carl in, in all of this, in, in the entire episode, save for one scene that we'll talk about in a bit. He's been in scene after scene after scene in the last in the season finale in 401 and now this no lines no story focus not even kind of the brief moment of you know Alex this is your mother and you get to to act doe eyed for for a little bit no Carl you know because of the circumstances of the end of the season and him paddling over to warn everyone they're coming they're coming right now Carl gets to bop along in this episode saying little except for you know in i mean my point is this the dude was showing up for work for wardrobe and hair and makeup day after day after day to film this episode for him to have one scene okay i guess two scenes there's a scene where ben is kind of goading him and right when it's about to get juicy sawyer shoots him away then there's the later scene where you know (laughs) ben shoots charlotte and carl's like what where's my gun but he doesn't say that because he doesn't have lines he's kind of looks and it's like whoop Oops, a daisy. Anyhow, let's move back to the story. The story moves back to Jack, Kate, and Dan wandering across the rocky lava outcroppings that the show so wonderfully uses. I think that we as the audience can see about three seconds ahead of it all that Miles has an arm behind his back. And predictably, perhaps, you know, just predictably for those couple of seconds, but oh so enjoyably, he snaps up, he's awake, gun in hand, trying to gain control over the situation. Jack clearly is convinced that if he just keeps both sides from doing anything rash, it'll all work out, he can explain it to everyone, everything can be logical and fit into that neat little Jack box, but... Okay. 
You're Kate! You want to tell me where Naomi is? What? Naomi, the woman you killed! Where is she? That, of course, takes us to an act break. Uh, and after it, the structure of the episode starts to come into focus. Uh, we're told on screen that we're in Inglewood, California, just as we were told that we were in Essex, Massachusetts with the, uh, with the Dan flashback. Uh, and the car radio is talking about the recently crashed 815. Uh, it's miles in the car. And I think for first-time viewers, uh, as well as for us, there's a bit of a sigh of of, you know, a bit of a sigh of relief. We're going to get information about these freighter folk tonight. If the pattern continues, as of course it does, we're going to get information on all four of them. We kind of almost forget that, you know, Naomi was the fifth, and we'll even get a Naomi flashback as well. I think that's part of what is so wonderful about this episode, that they don't stretch out the mystery of who are these people and give, you know, and say, oh, in due time, we're going to tell you one by one about these people. No. Let's just inject these people into the story quickly. They're not major characters in the sense of, you know, th that they're meant to help carry the series for its entire run that will ultimately be 121 episodes. No, these are characters that they know are being introduced with 40-some-odd episodes to go. What is it? Uh, there's 48 to go after this. So they don't need to have the broadest of, soul, uh, of shoulders uh, let's inject them into the story now. Let's inject them with some new mysteries. What you know? Where is Dan's expertise? Can Mile really talk to ghosts? What's his business with Charlotte in the desert, etc., cetera, etc.? Cetera. So anyhow, Miles introduces himself as Miles Strom, a bit heavy-handed, perhaps you know, Maelstrom, but say la vie. And you know, there's something slightly off-kilter about the whole presentation of him. Not ineffective, I'm not criticizing the show, but there's just something odd about him. His whole brown market enterprise, uh, you know, ghost-busting, uh, the vacuum cleaner apparatus, which apparently does nothing, uh, and then, because we're told moments earlier that the grandson is dead, he apparently is talking to a ghost, and I think that we kind of would say, a ghost, really? Uh, of course, in retrospect, we shouldn't be surprised. This is a, a you know, a show that uh, will embrace the notion of of ghosts <laughs> and the notion of the afterlife, etc. All of it, though, all of this stuff—the vacuum cleaner and his talking to the dead grandson—it seems to work. With uh, and he's saying, "Where is it? Where is it?" Down, and, you know. Then we have something that drops down off screen. Miles moves a bookcase, finding a bag, oh, money, and something else, which. I'm assuming was drugs. So what do we get out of that scene? He's not a charlatan, and he's not a scam artist, and when the grandmother asks him if it worked, he pauses and glances. Is this guilt, perhaps, that he's using his gift in such a low way? As the scene wraps up, we like him more, although a bit more, because he refunds the grandmother half off. That's right, he only charged her $100 to come into her house, get a bag of a dead boy's money, and then tell him to skedaddle. So, I guess that's nice of him. It certainly is in line with the character. Hey, he's doing her a favor. It was going to be a $200 job, it's only going to be a $100 job, and now he has a stack of hundreds that he got from the dead boy. 
Uh, that's that's Miles, though. Gray morals, not good, not evil. Uh, it's also another statement by the show that, as I said earlier, that there are ghosts. Last week there was Charlie, and now we have a genuine Ghostbuster. The island story continues with Miles spelling out the tell my sister I love her code, proof that Naomi was in trouble. He also hammers home what we just learned about him. Uh, he'll know what happens to her, what he will know what happened to her, that is to say, if only they'll take him to her body. And in fact, he yells it so it's clear to us. The story then moves to Team Locke where Ben decides that uh, he has to tell Alex something. Uh, There's a wonderful moment where Ben, tied up and still bloody, is able to run off his mouth uh, to Carl and Sawyer. Although in the latter situation, Sawyer has enough and gives Ben uh, another whooping. (laughs) Poor Ben. Side note, it's not that Michael Emerson looks bad covered in blood. I mean, it's not kind of (laughs) his... normal look but uh he does look noticeably different though when his hair is is down as it is from the different travels and travails that he's been through and the rain that they've had on them and everything he needs that bigger hair to kind of sell his i mean i don't think he's a super tall guy but certainly he's you know the character and the actor uh even if he is normal height he's kind of a he's a small man with a big brain um he's that 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 you know in that warner brothers cartoon with the big dog and the little dog he's the little dog who just happens to be you know it's the end of the cartoon where he's the one that 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 that's in charge he needs that spiky hair and when you when you wet his hair down and then bloody his face it's like who's that guy back there what's he saying why is he tied to a tree anyhow post Ben whooping. There's a nice moment where Locke both explains why Ben is coming along, because he knows the island so well, and then quote unquote gives Sawyer's permission uh, gives Sawyer permission to kill Ben in front of his daughter. Why is this a good move on Locke's part? Because it's he's inviting Sawyer to the notion of Sawyer acting like the real Mr. Sawyer did to him, to Sawyer, causing trouble until a child sees his or her parent killed. Uh, Now, granted, it was, you know, Sawyer's father who killed the mother than himself, not the real Mr. Sawyer, but I think there's just kind of this notion of, do you want to be the guy who led to the death of Alex's father? Just as there was the real Mr. Sawyer who led to the death of both of, of... you know, Mr. and Mrs. Ford. And indeed, this notion slows Sawyer down. There's a great little moment where he looks into the crowd and sees Hurley, who shakes his head, no, you know, no, don't do it. It's Hurley, the moral compass. Sawyer relinquishes the rope holding Ben, relinquishes it to to, uh, Locke, but not before noting that Ben likely knows how he'll kill everyone who's wronged him. And that's a chilling reminder, of course, that Ben is much more than a mouth. With that, we're back to Naomi, dead, and Miles reading her aura, or whatever he does. While he's doing that, Daniel notes that the light is different here, another clue about the magic mystical island. Then after that, there's just a stand-up-and-cheer moment, which starts out sounding like a retreaded tire at first, but it sure is good. 
I said, let's go. You need to put the guns down. What? Put the guns down. Now, why would I do that? Because our friends are out in the jungle right now holding the gun at your head and his head. So I'm going to forget about the misunderstanding. Just put the guns down. Come on, how stupid do you think... It is, of course, Saeed and Juliet to save the day. And hey, they have guns, just like Juliet asked about in her previous scene. I don't know, Miles. How stupid are you? It is, of course, also a bit of a callback to, uh, you know, this is our island. Don't cross this line. There are people, you know, with uh, guns pointed at you. Light them up. That whole scene with Beardo or Beardy, whatever you want to call him, the deceased Tom. Uh, anyhow, that, as you heard, ends the act. And then with the next act underway, we're in sand-blowy Tunisia. The newspaper headline tells us that we're still in flashback, or that we've returned to flashback, rather. Uh, though we could have figured it out. The pattern has be- become predictable enough. Uh, it's Charlotte, though at this point she hasn't been properly named yet, kind of face-to-name. to, face to uh, They make their way into a semi-restricted dig site and then find something that really, really catches our ears. Not by a few million years. It's an Ursus Maritimus. Wait, Ursus? As in bear? As in polar bear. Charlotte, we're in the desert. This is a hoax, right? Attends, he wants to know what you're doing with the hammer. Excavating. Is that a collar? It, of course, looks so very familiar to us. That Hydra Station logo, this mention of a polar bear. It even says Dharma on there. And, of course, we'll learn by the end of the season about island movements and traveling in time and space. But for right now, it's just this delightful little nugget filled with, filled with promise. And, uh, you know, it's kind of the thing that they keep hanging on to. You know, the, the first tangible mystery of the show, you know, <laughs> is this polar bear in the jungle. Uh, and then it's something that they returned to a bit with uh, the first uh, alternate reality game, kind of tangentially. Some, you know, Sawyer and Kate and Jack in the bear cages, okay, doing these experiments. And then here we have kind of a return to it again, that 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 original small mystery. With that flashback over, we meet Island Charlotte, who in a fantastic camera move is upside down for real. There's an even better shot right after that, perhaps, hopefully, done by a stunt double. And the camera snakes out across the tree that has caught her parachute and shows us that we're over a ravine. It's just a fantastic, fantastic moment. Charlotte releases herself and has a moment of glee. She lands in the water. Yippee, she's lived. She's fine. Uh, I wonder if perhaps she remembers that she's been here before. Her happiness uh, isn't around long because Locke and company have arrived. With that, the story moves to Dan and Miles, the comedy hour, as Saeed has a gun to both of them. Dan, uh, kind of Aspergerly, if that if it can be turned into an adverb, uh, introduces himself by full name and profession, and Miles will only reveal that he's Miles. And dryly, 
sarcastically says that his job is to collect soil samples. The story then goes to Charlotte holding court with the very people who didn't want to be found. Hurley reveals a bit. He is, in a sense, the comic counterpart to Dan. And Locke shuts him up, the comic counterpart to Miles. It's not that the freighter folk are copies of the characters that we already know, of course. Sure, Miles has a bit of the con man Sawyer in him, and Dan is professor-esque and almost a well-meaning Hurley type, but when the show starts with some 17-odd leads and then expands the numbers from there each season, overlaps are going to occur. At any rate, Charlotte is told uh, that they're taking her with them. With that, we cut to Saeed holding another sat phone. Uh, He notices that Charlotte, or at least her signal, is moving fast towards them. Jack notes that she is running. We're in for a bit of a surprise, though, as the return of an old friend, Vincent T-Dog, arrives, tracking transceiver from Charlotte, now fixed to his collar. Jack decides that Locke has Charlotte, and it's shocking enough to end the act. We return, predictably in flashback, with a plane going down, although it's a plastic one in an aquarium. And behind it is that great, scraggly, bearded, hero-anti-hero, Lapidus. In the background uh, of the scene is another news report of the recently crashed and more recently found underwater fuselage. We see a picture of a pilot. Uh, It is, of course, Seth Norris, played by Greg Gunberg. Uh, It's him returning to the show the first time since the pilot episode. Yes, there was a deleted scene with him, uh, which I regret that they didn't... uh, use in the main cut or in a dvd etc but oh well uh there there also is on screen the oceanic hotline which we are going to call and see if it still works right now it was great fun when this episode aired to call it and and to get a a recorded oceanic answer so as i say we're gonna try it right now 888-548-0034 call and speakerphone and we will see what happens number has been temporarily disabled and it's now hung up on me pity pity that it doesn't work uh at the time back when the episode aired uh oh i'm trying to think what it said had i mean it was kind of an oceanic thing i think it was maybe all uh Operators are, uh, are are busy. Please stand by, and it would maybe play it a few times and disconnect you or whatever. So, did work at one time. Pity that it no longer works today. Anyway, Lapidus sees uh, the TV focus on Captain Seth Norris, uh, as well as the creepy underwater shot of his body, left hand included, which causes him to immediately call the hotline. And I think that that call works better than ours just did. Transportation Safety Board, Oceanic Hotline. Yeah, let me speak to your supervisor. Yes, sir. Are you a family member of the deceased? No, I'm not, but I got some information on the crash. May I please speak to your supervisor? Sir, if you could just tell me... Look, I'm staring at the television right now. You're broadcasting footage of the wreckage and saying that that's the pilot, Seth Norris. Yes, sir. Well, that's not him. Please hold. Who am I speaking with? Doesn't matter who I am. You're showing footage of Seth Norris, and that's not him. Listen, this guy married his high school sweetheart at 19. He always wore his wedding ring, and I'm telling you, there's no ring on that body. Sir, it's likely the ring fell off. I'm telling you, that is not him. 
because I was supposed to be flying Oceanic 815 on that day. It's a great introduction for Frank Lapidus and a reminder that from the very first moment that we see him on screen, not counting the shaky copter crash, he says that he had some sort of destiny with the island. He was supposed to have flown 815. Uh, He will, of course, fly out the escaping survivors in 48 more episodes. Back on the island, Frank is bruised and bloodied, but otherwise okay. He climbs a steep hill to find a cow. Well, a bull, actually, judging by the creature as it walks away, if you know what I mean. Uh, Lapidus produces his sat phone, broken, and flare gun, working. Uh, He fires it, and it's seen by Locke who forbids Charlotte from leaving. Uh, And then what proceeds is a quick, action-packed few moments. Charlotte is shot. Ben has the gun. Carl is a dope with no gun in his belt anymore. Sawyer tackles the ever-living hell out of Ben. Locke goes to dead Charlotte, who takes a deep breath and reveals that she's wearing a bulletproof vest. (laughs) Fast couple of moments indeed. Luckily, the flair drew Jack and company, who uh, wake him up and find a perfectly fine chopper in the clearing. Uh, The chopper upon which Claire and and Aaron will get onto, just as Desmond foretold. I think that's a question that we would have had back when the episode first aired. Pity that it's not the case. The music here is exceedingly triumphant, perhaps a bit excessively so, but to be fair, it is the first sign of things working right that Jack, Kate, and Saeed have seen for a while, and it's that moment that ends the act. After the break, we see photos of the team being introduced to a sullen Naomi, employed by Abaddon. She quickly repeats the backgrounds of the four, head case, ghostbuster, anthropologist, and drunk, the last of which Abaddon reminds her is also a good pilot. There's also a connection, of course, to flash forward Hurley, uh, we saw Abaddon last week, and uh, we now that we have this sense that Abaddon is involved with the freighter folk, with getting to the island, with, with as we'll learn in a bit, capturing Ben, uh, it makes it all the more creepy that in Hurley's flash forward after this, you know, after whatever is going to occur. I mean, we know it's we know in retrospect it's a failed attempt to get Ben, but. You know the things that will occur with the freighter folk uh, that that Abaddon is still trying to, you know, to to get his meat hooks into everything to to you know to to have things work out. Anyhow, Abaddon in this scene says that uh, everything in the plan relies on Naomi getting the team in with no one getting hurt and no one getting killed. She says that she can make that happen. And the flashback ends with a dead Naomi on camera. Oops. Saeed is at this point getting done okaying the chopper, and Miles makes a call to the freighter. Foreshadowing, foreshadowing, for Minkowski can't come to the phone, Regina answers and quickly ends the conversation. Pity that Minkowski can't find his constant, but more on that in another day. There's some dialogue at this point about whether Naomi's body should have, should be taken now or later. Lapita says later. Uh, and then he has a wandering little conversation with Juliet. Or so it seems. How bad does it feel? 
What's your name again? Juliet. Juliet. Juliet what? Juliet Burke. Juliet Burke. You weren't on that plane, were you? Miles? Yeah. This is Juliet. And she was not on the plane. What? You sure? You know how many times I studied that damn manifest believing there's no Juliet Burke on that plane? She's a native. Really? Where is he? Back off. Where's who? You want to know why we're here? I'll tell you why we're here. We're here for Benjamin Linus. Now, where is he? Three wonderful things come out of that scene. First, the central mission of the freighter has now been revealed. Though it was teased for a time last season, the the question of their, their central mission, we've now only spent parts of three episodes learning why it's not Penny's boat. Record time for the show, and perhaps a product of that end date being in place. Uh, they've got miles of mythology to go, so things can certainly zip along a bit faster. The second wonderful thing is the picture that is shown of Ben is fantastic. It's kind of vaguely in the past with an older computer and odd fashion on Ben, and his head is turned as though he's a celebrity with his picture being snapped while he walks the dog. Third, the third wonderful thing in this scene, Lapidus's eyebrows. Not much to say there, only that they are like majestic-looking caterpillars above his eyes. It's an actor's tool. With that, we head back to Camp Locke, and Charlotte is sneering and indignant, but not for long, as Locke is ready to do the deed and kill Ben. But since we're softly rolling into the season, let's load our plate up high with questions and answers. I have information that you need. I have answers. What is the monster? What? The black smoke, the monster. What is it? I don't know. Goodbye, Benjamin. Her name is Charlotte Lewis. Charlotte Staples Lewis. Born July 2nd, 1979, Essex, England. Parents David and Jeanette, eldest of three, all girls. She was raised in Bromsgrove. Did her undergraduate studies at Kent. Took her PhD in cultural anthropology at Oxford. She's here with two other team members and a pilot. Their names Daniel Faraday, Miles Strom, Frank Lapidus. With that final name there, Charlotte looks dejected and beaten. And indeed, I suppose she is. Your instinct was right, John. These people are a threat. And if you shoot me, you'll never know how great a threat they were. Because I know what they're doing here. I know what they want. What do they want? Me, James, they want me. How do you know all this? Because I have a man on their boat.
After Ben says that last line, he lifts his eyebrows up just a tad. Gun to his head, his wounds bleeding, and moments away from being killed, he's still in control. Here, too, begins the not-that-impressive guessing game as to who the man on the boat is. First-time viewers would start assuming that it's Michael. We assumed that it was Michael. You know, we start anticipating that it will be Michael. He's been returned to the, to the cast list, and after these two episodes, he's not there still. Uh, we certainly seem to have, you know, the, the helicopter people landed, and we have the island people here, so... Gee whiz, the only place we haven't been is the freighter, and there's a man on the boat who somehow is connected to Ben. Uh, how many people have been connected to Ben? Oh, wait, uh, Michael. The answer will be, of course, as we prognosticate as first-time viewers, Michael. That said, it doesn't take away from a lean, mean, jam-packed successor to the other 48 days in my book. It feels like a second-season premiere, as I said earlier, and the only regret is that this and the previous episode didn't air on the same night, which would have been just amazing. Luckily, we're watching now on DVD and online and Blu-ray and all that, so we can have our own two-night, two-hour premiere. And with that, let's now look at the another lengthy list of goodies from Lostpedia. It starts out by saying that as Ben recites Charlotte's birth date of July 2nd, 1979, that is an error, according to producers Lindelof and Cuse. They have stated that Charlotte's birthday should have been 1971. You might say, oh, well, that's kind of interesting. Ah, the plot thickens. The producers initially assigned partial blame for the error to actress Rebecca Mater, indicating that Mater changed the date on set without the producer's permission. Lindelof and Cuse later retracted the statement and apologized, admitting Mater's script had indeed shown 1979 as Charlotte's birth date. Despite the confusion, Lindelof and Cuse maintained that, 19, that the 1979 date is incorrect. Uh, I think on the Wikipedia page for this, there's further information. The script supervisor changed it, uh, and that's the person who would have the onset authority to do so, uh, not knowing that there were plans to have young Charlotte in... Uh, you know, in the Dharma Initiative, and uh, <laughs> that's why her birth date is not 1979. Next bit here on Lostpedia, while Miles kneels over Naomi's body, whispers can be heard. Uh, when the audio in the scene is reversed and slowed down slightly and cleaned up, the phrase, you gotta see it through, can be heard. Also, this episode contains the only instance in which Miles, our, our dear friend Miles, communicates with someone without their body or ashes being nearby. This referring to the, uh, the grandson. In Some Like at Hoth, Miles claims that he cannot communicate with the dead without something physical being present. Uh, now, as I've said many times, much more back towards season one, just because a character says something, it doesn't need to be true. Charlie says he can't swim to rescue uh, the, the drowning woman uh, in the, 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 the fourth, fifth, sixth episode of the series, somewhere along there. But later, it turns out he can swim. Yeah, how about he lied because he didn't want to see somebody drown, but he didn't care enough to go risk his own life. You know, that's possible. Just because someone says something doesn't need to be true. Four bits of trivia to go. Uh, one about the location of Essex. Daniel Faraday's flashback takes place in Essex, Massachusetts. 
Ben reveals that Charlotte was born in Essex, England. Essex is also a reference to the famous whaling ship that was launched off the coast of Nantucket in 1819. You might say, oh, this sounds boring. Ah, keep listening. The mission of the ship was to hunt sperm whales in the South Pacific. The ship sank, and the crew ended up on an uninhabited island in the Pitcairn chain, where they fed on birds, fruits, and vegetation, as well as water from a local freshwater spring, before resorting to cannibalism. The surviving members of the crew were rescued on day 93, and the story is the inspiration for Melville's Moby Dick. Three to go here, Faraday takes a long pause before recalling his name when asked. This foreshadows some type of memory loss as revealed in Eggtown, where he can't remember the playing cards, and later in The Variable, when it is revealed that Daniel hoped to regain his memory by visiting the island. Penultimately, and interestingly, Mater and Fahey's, that's uh, the actors who play, uh, who play Charlotte and Lapidus respectively, their appearances were different from the writer's original visions of Charlotte and Frank. The writers changed the characters to suit them. I think there's also a tidbit out there somewhere that originally Charlotte wasn't going to be British, but they liked her British accent better than her fake American one, and there you go. The role of Miles was written specifically for actor Ken Lung, and uh, the part would have been drastically altered had it not, uh, had he not accepted. Last but not least, co-executive producer and writer Edward Kitsis had been pitching the name Lapidus for years, finally naming an unseen character in the 14th episode of the third season, Rick Lapidus. Unsatisfied, Kitsis developed the character of Frank Lapidus, helicopter pilot. According to the showrunners, recurring guest star Jeff Fahey was the first and only choice for the role, which, of course, directly uh, conflicts the previous, <laughs> the previous uh, uh, tidbit to a certain degree. I suppose once the character was fleshed out, you then say, oh, we want Jeff Fahey, and there you go. Let's look ahead to next week, which, heck, I might watch tonight, because these episodes are fantastic. Next week, 403, The Economist, where we see a slightly older Saeed doing the dirty deeds of a certain someone who at the end of the episode is... Well, you know, I won't spoil it. If your memory is a bit weak, you can listen next week. Hopefully you don't have uh, memory loss like Daniel. So thank you very much for listening. If you'd like to share feedback, say hello on Twitter, where I'm looking back lost. Call the listener line, 732-707-1815. Send an email to lookingbackatlost at gmail.com or visit the webpage, lookingbackatlost.podbean.com. This is the longest podcast I've done for a while, and uh, certainly befitting such an episode, one that's both action-packed and filled with uh, mystery and speculation. So thank you again, everybody, for listening. Take care, and I will talk to you all again next week for 4.03 The Economist. Take care, and bye-bye.